Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. ladies had a nice Mother's Day. Thank you for joining us for another Nightlight adventure. Um, I'm so thrilled to have Mark Olshaker returning tonight, and he and John Douglas have another captivating book entitled When a Killer Calls. Mark was a guest a few months ago to review their The Killer's Shadow, We'll uh, be weaving other profile stories from several other of their books into tonight's discussion. Uh, Mark was involved with the Mindhunter show on Netflix, and he is also a Rod Serling protege. Hi, Mark. Welcome back to Nightlight. How are you? Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Oh, it's... Uh, uh, you know, you know, a small section of my library uh, keeps expanding with uh, your, your works. Uh, well, that's encouraging. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, uh, I think you and uh, John have some uh, so, something uh, just really, I, I don't know what you call it, uh, Interesting going on. Well, you've had what ten books or so you've co-authored or more. Yeah, some, something like that. And you know, I, I guess if if I can anticipate your uh, your question, Mark, um, I think the reason that uh, we keep going or we have kept going, and the reason that. Uh, um, People do seem to be interested in in the true crime genre, and I'm often asked about why. And uh, I think the reason is because people want to, like me personally, I think people want to understand why people do the things they do. I mean, true crime, when you think about it, it's the human condition writ large at the at the extremes. I mean, we all we all feel basic emotions, love, hate, 
jealousy, revenge, resentment. I mean, you name it. I'm sure you can come up with a lot more mm-hmm. than I've just said. But uh, this is this is about people who aren't limited by the kind of uh, impulse control or behavior control or, you know, for want of a better word, moral universe that uh, that mo- that most of us are. Uh, they don't have any compassion uh, or empathy for other people. And so this is the extreme. And I think both of these books that you've mentioned, uh, both The Killer's Shadow, our previous book, and this current one, uh, When a Killer Calls, really are about extremes of human behavior. On one side, you've got some very vicious criminals uh, with no compassion whatsoever. And on the other side, you've got some very heroic victims, uh, really courageous, and some uh, and some very dedicated uh, law enforcement officers, uh, attorneys, uh, investigators, profilers, you know, all trying to do the right thing. So, I think that's the reason why um, people continue to be interested. At least, uh, at least I think so. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I've, there's some other um, of those emotions that you know we could talk about uh, towards the end of the show that, that I want to bring up and and. And things uh, with a, a positive uh, n- notes, but you know, we could just look at what's g- gone on over the last week with the you know that prison romance and escape story, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah, that's that, pretty wild, isn't it? it yeah, I mean that. Uh, it's just a perfect lead-in for tonight's show, and, and you know, like with all these, uh, you know, books and notes <clears throat> I have all over my desk. You know, it's like, an, uh, okay, how much of this prison romance is all about fantasy and control, and who's on what side of the bars, and this isn't going to end well, <laughs> and. I, I, have you and John written a book that, that touches on a subject like that? Well, indirectly, yes. And you're absolutely right that no matter – let's say we were having this show a couple of days ago before the end of this. We could have predicted that this wasn't going to end well. I mean there was no way it could it could end well. And uh, – yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this certainly is about control. It's about manipulation. It's about domination to a certain extent. Um, there's a lot we don't know yet about the relationship between these two people who coincidentally were both uh, had the surname White, even though I understand they, they weren't related. But you know what? I, I kind of relate this to, um, and I'm sure you've... Uh, You've read about this. We've certainly written about it. About uh, women who uh, who fall in love with uh, with killers in prison, particularly serial killers. I mean, particularly attractive ones like Ted Bundy or notorious ones mm-hmm. like Charlie Manson. And I wonder if there wasn't something like that going on here. Um, 
the thing that's huh. very bizarre is that this this woman was very close to uh, retirement, as I understand it. Uh, she sold her house uh, and went off with this guy. So, yeah, I think the the key word that you mentioned uh, uh, in leading into this is fantasy. I think that whatever problems uh, this woman had in her life, and obviously I don't know what they are because – you know, we, I don't know much about her, and I don't think any of us do. But whatever issues, problems, inadequacies she felt in her life, she felt that this, she clearly felt that this relationship was going to take care of them. Now, how do you, uh, you know, but that's as far as it goes, because how do you break out of uh, somebody out of prison, particularly uh, a, a murderer and somebody who's awaiting waiting trial for another murder, I understand, and uh, and ex- and expect that no one's going to come looking for you or that uh, you're going to be able to hide and evade the authorities. So, you know, it's one of those things like um, actually what I uh, – what I kind of liken it to in a way is going back to John Hinckley and the attempted uh, assassination of Ronald Reagan. Uh, he thought in his misguided way that he was going to impress this young actress, Jodie Foster. He was, an, uh, as I remember the story, he was going to, to, to demand uh, that she be brought to him, that an airplane was brought to him, and that they could take off. But then you have to think, then what? I mean, what did he think was going to happen at the end of that plane flight? I mean, so I think to, to a certain extent, this is, um, yeah, there's a lot of fantasy involved, but there's, you know, along with that, there's a lot of disordered thinking because, um, as you said yourself, uh, very difficult to conceive how this could end well under any circumstances. Yeah, and. You know, giving a little rundown on the show from you know, the last show uh, from uh, the, the previous Sunday, and Roger was talking a little bit about uh, Leon Chulgosh almost got into this, uh, like had had these. Uh, uh, a passion for Emma Goldman, who was doing the mm-hmm. indoctrination uh, of you know, union uh, rights and all, mm-hmm. all these turn the century uh, topics. And uh, you know, we can get get into this. Um, yeah, Mark, remind me when when was the uh, uh, Garfield assassination? Or was this McKinley? Is this McKinley? Okay, nineteen oh one. Okay, it, it was. It. Uh, you know, it was almost the same thing, and, and he did. Uh, uh, Roger did say uh, that that it was almost like uh, the Hinckley and Jodie Foster scenario. Interesting. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm starting to send you that archive, to, but it, it was really what you just mentioned, and you know, from forty the assassination attempt forty years ago, and. 120 years ago, you have almost the same same type of thing, and it, you know, that's one of the neat things about reading what uh, you and John put together in these books is uh, uh, 
what seems really un- unusual is understandable once you two write about it. Well, th- thank you. Um, and I think, you know, when we're talking about the assassin personality, um, the first thing we think of, of course, is somebody who's very mission-driven. Uh, he, and it's almost always a he, although we've had a few women who attempted um, uh, Sarah Jane Moore and Squeaky Fromm both tried to assassinate President Ford, fortunately, mm-hmm. unsuccessfully. They were both, as I recall, both uh, Manson followers. But you, you've got somebody who seems to be mission-oriented, but if once you start looking into their backgrounds, you find... Um, somebody who's deeply inadequate, somebody who's looking for meaning, somebody who may have been abused in their background. Uh, and they're, uh, and sometimes it doesn't even matter to them who they uh, assassinate. They just want that glory or that sense of control. Um, uh, the, the attempted assassin of, uh, uh, of, George Wallace in uh, 1972, Arthur Bremer, uh, at first uh, was stalking President Nixon, and uh, he thought that was going to be his great glory. But he he couldn't get close because of the protection around the president. He couldn't get close enough to him. So he chose Wallace, not because he particularly agreed or disagreed with Wallace's uh, uh, with Wallace's program. I mean, I obviously disagreed with it a lot, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was he was accessible. Um, And, you know, you find this uh, over and over again. I mean, even if you look at somebody like John Wilkes Booth, yes, he was uh, was, uh, uh, certainly mission-oriented in trying to, and succeeding in assassinating uh, President Lincoln. Uh, he was also the only Southern sympathizer in his family, uh, so he was sort of the odd person out. He was in the shadow of his actor brother, uh, Edwin Booth, and his uh, father, uh, Junius Brutus Booth. Um, and he thought that by... Uh, uh, that by assassinating President Lincoln, he would be a great hero. Uh, so you, I, I can't think of a single assassin type personality, um, and this even goes as far as assassins of celebrities like Mark David Chapman, who killed uh, uh, who killed John Lennon. These are deeply deeply flawed, inadequate individuals, as was Joseph Paul Franklin, uh, the assassin that we wrote about in uh, The Killer's Shadow, Shadow, um, who went on a three-year rampage uh, killing uh, uh, black people, uh, mixed-race couples, and uh, Jews because uh, he, uh, he, he was mission-oriented and he thought he would start a race war. And, then it, and that sounds all very mission-oriented. He had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He had been a member of the National States Rights Party. He had been a member of the National Socialist White People's Party, which was the, uh, which was the successor to the American Nazi Party. Um, and uh, yet, when you uh, look, and look at his background, I mean, this is a deeply inadequate guy who uh, 
was good at two things. He was good at killing and he was good at bank robberies. And he wasn't and and he could have made a very good living as a bank robber for a long time if he didn't have this other idea that he had to kill people and start a race war. He was a very good bank robber as it turns out, but he didn't care about the money. The uh <laughs> unlike most uh, bank robbers, he just did it to support his main uh, uh object in life, which was uh to kill black people and Jews. Okay, well, and you, you do mention that Franklin uh, had written a threatening letter to uh, pres- uh, uh, you know, the future President uh, Carter. Right, exactly. So, um, so I mean, so part of the part of the story of, of this book, which uh, which takes place beginning in 1980, is um, this guy Franklin is on the loose. They've identified him uh, at, because of a uh, kind of a fluke, but he's escaped from custody. Nobody knows where he is, um, but they know that he is a out and out racist. They know he's a really good sniper. That he uh, that he can kill people uh, uh, with a with a uh, rifle from far a scope uh, a scope mounted rifle uh, from far away, and this is 1980, and President uh, Carter is running uh, is running a campaign uh, to be reelected president, and uh, he's going down south. Uh, to Atlanta and other places like that, and the FBI and the Secret Service are scared out of their minds that uh, this guy may be uh, stalking the president now. And that's when they called in John Douglas, my writing partner, who was uh, uh, really new in profiling at that point, and said, can you do a fugitive assessment on this guy and help us find him? And um, that's what the first half of the book is about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know, we just looked at the underbelly of you know, the seventies with Squeaky from and you know, uh, tr- trying to shoot uh, uh, President Ford, you know, getting into mm-hmm. uh, President Carter and then pre- President uh, or uh, President Reagan, yeah, and. Uh, we have uh was it the Gr- the green river killer uh going on at about the same time as the Atlanta child murder and the the Sherry Smith's case which is the subject. Yeah there's a lot there's there's a lot of bad stuff going on and you know this was also you know, if you go back a few years, 1977 was uh, the year of uh, uh, the Son of Sam. It was the year of all the uh, fires in the South Bronx, kind of lawlessness in New York City. Um, and, you know, people uh, people my age, at least, and I don't want to date myself too much, but people my age think of the 1960s as the great age of revolt. But they forget that in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, a lot of bad stuff was going on. There were a lot of riots. Uh, there were there were bombings of all sorts. There were uh, radical-oriented bank robberies. Uh, so yeah, there was there was a lot of a lot of bad stuff going on at at that point. And uh, so you're absolutely right. So, so 
let's set the stage with uh, Sherry Smith's case and in 1985, so it's a little bit after uh, this you know, really nasty late 70s, early 80s stuff. So, yeah. Uh, let's, yeah, this is exactly the opposite in a, in a way. Uh, you've got a small town, uh, uh, Lexing- Lexington, uh, South Carolina, a very uh, kind of a peaceful place, friendly place, kind of rural. Uh, and one day in the spring of 1985, Sherry Smith, a blonde, beautiful uh, 17-year-old, is about to graduate from high school, and she comes home after going to uh, uh, a swim party, after meeting her mother at the post office to get uh, uh, money orders uh, and, and buy some clothing, uh, because she's going on the senior trip to the Bahamas in a few days, and this is a Friday, and on Sunday she is uh, supposed to. Send, she's a uh, she's a near professional singer. That's what she hopes to be. She's going to sing the national anthem at the uh, at the gra- at the high school graduation, and she stops on her way home. Uh, she lives way down a long uh, gravel driveway. Her house is uh, several hundred yards from the road because her parents have a big plot of land. She stops at the mailbox um, to pick up the mail, and that's it. She's not not seen again alive. And uh, her parents are home. They, uh, They notice her car at the top of the hill, and in a couple of minutes, they realize, well, wait a minute, why isn't Sherry coming home? So her, her dad, Robert, drives his car up to, the, uh, up to the street, finds Sherry's car is running. The door is open. Her purse is still on the seat. Uh, there are footprints. Uh, she, uh, she had not put her shoes back on since she'd been at the swim uh, party. There are footprints in the dirt to the mailbox and no fit footprints back. Uh, he immediately calls the uh, the, uh, the sheriff's department. They come over, um, and we've got a missing case, which leads to the largest manhunt in South Carolina history. Um, now, the really horrible part about this story is the person who apparently abducted her uh, in a few days starts calling the family. That's the Hence the title of our book, When a Killer Calls. He starts calling the family and describing himself as a friend of Sherry's, but also that he's got her and that she's alive and uh, what he's going uh, and he's going to let her go, but maybe he'll kill himself and just absolutely torturing the family. And then uh, uh, the, the FBI is called in, which is how John Douglas gets involved. They begin. Uh, uh, because the uh, uh, Columbia, South Carolina FBI, uh, local uh, FBI field office calls them in, and they start uh, trying to figure this guy out and profile him. And uh, uh, in a few days, he says, uh, "You're going to get a letter from Sherry, uh, from Sherry, and uh, that'll tell you everything." Um, on that the, mon- the Monday uh, following the graduation, they do get this letter, and it's called Last Will and Testament. It's written on lined paper, obviously from a legal pad of some sort, and Sherry at this point knows that this man is going to kill her, 
and she tells uh, her parents that, uh, and her sister and her boyfriend, not to uh, not to grieve about her. That she knows she's going to heaven, and this, that, and the other. Uh, it's probably the most searing document of its kind I've ever seen. Uh, it's certainly an incredible testament to grace, courage. Uh, I don't know what else to call it, that this this girl, not quite 18, knew she was going to be killed almost immediately, and yet she had the the grace, if you will, to write out this, this document. Uh, uh, and interestingly enough, if we get ahead of ourselves in the story, this document helps lead ultimately to the killer, along with mm-hmm. uh, behavioral profiling and some really good detective work. Um, but uh, uh, it's it's just an absolutely searing story, completely tragic, but at the same time, a story of uh, absolute depravity and evil on the part of a uh, killer who wants to become a serial killer and a uh, and a victim and a victim's family who show just incredible grace faith and courage and uh, so it's it's both a tragic story and an incredibly inspiring story at the same time and i guess to go back to our your original point that's one of the reasons people read true crime to get to get these extremes of uh, to understand and comprehend and empathize, if you will, with these extremes of of human behavior and the human condition. Okay, well, uh, uh, do you mind if I read uh, a paragraph? Please, whatever you like. Yeah. Okay. Well, you and John wrote. Um, I mean, if you tell me where it is, I'll read. I'll, I'll I'll read it if you like, but it's up to you. Oh, it's on it's on page forty three. Uh, forty three. Uh, All right, let's see. It's okay. right after Sherry's letter, and it starts off while striving. Okay. All right. How how far do you want, how far do you want me to go, Mark? To the end of the paragraph. Uh, to un, uh, unbearable. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay. While striving to be empathic, those of us in law enforcement try to maintain our objectivity and a reasonable detachment, but that just isn't possible when you have to try to feel what the victim was feeling. Putting myself in Sherry Smith's head at the time she was writing this was almost unbearable. John had a real difficult time with... Yeah, and, and I think you bring up an interesting point here, Mark, which is that uh, when you're trying to solve crime, when you're a detective or an investigator of any kind, uh, you really do try to um, be objective. You have to try to separate yourself out. But with what a profiler does, with what somebody like John and his team uh, have to do, you not only have to put yourself in the head of the uh, of the offender, you have to put yourself in the head of the victim, too, to understand what the victim was going through, how the victim might have reacted, how the uh, how the uh, offender might have reacted to the victim's reaction. And so that takes a tremendous emotional toll. There's, there's no way around it. I mean, John tells me frequently that 
you know, he'll be walking in the woods or something. He used to be with his kids when they were younger, and he'd see a stream or whatever, and he'd say, oh, that reminds me of the place where we found the body of such and such. So, you know, there are all these triggers, and in this kind of work, you really do have to get yourself involved with uh, uh, with the emotional side of it. And I think that takes its toll. And in this case, it was even... I think it was even uh, more strenuous uh, emotionally because once John started listening to the transcripts and recordings of uh, these calls that this sadistic, um, narcissistic killer was making to the Smith family, uh, he realized that um, not only was uh, the killer, the unsub, the unknown subject as we call him, uh, obsessed with... uh, Sherry Smith, uh, he was also became obsessed with her look-alike older sister, Dawn. They looked very much alike. They used to sing together. They were known as the uh, singing Smith sisters. And uh, John, when he actually went down to uh, Lexington to try to uh, help out and work the case, he realized that um, he could actually use Dawn as bait bring the killer out now this was extremely dangerous also extremely emotionally harrowing and um i you know i just have endless admiration for dawn's courage and the courage of of her parents um that they would uh that they would go along with this with the idea of trying to uh flush out uh uh, Sherry's killer. And I also might add that exactly two weeks after Sherry was killed, even though, uh, even though, uh, and the, and the killer, by the way, in one of his phone calls, uh, told Dawn where to find the body, which was, uh, he waited long enough for the body to be decomposed and in the woods in, uh, in the intense South Carolina heat of, uh, of that month. And uh, he kept saying, well, things got out of hand. He didn't really want to do it. Uh, um, He was going to kill himself and all of that, which we knew was absolute nonsense. Two weeks to the day after he uh, abducted Sherry, uh, 17-year-old Sherry, he abducted nine-year-old, also blonde, Deborah May Helmick from the trailer uh, park where she and her family lived. Uh, We don't even know how she died, but uh, he then led... uh, through another phone call, he led Dawn uh, and the police to uh, her body. So, I mean, this was an, a, an incredibly vicious guy who clearly was going to continue his murderous spree until he was caught. I mean, so the clock the clock was ticking every minute. Okay. Let's... Um, Go, go into some of these uh, phone calls. Uh, it, you know, some of the first ones he's using a, a, a pitch modulator to distort yeah. his voice. Yeah. So, so the point is 
this guy was pretty sophisticated. I mean, he was totally narcissistic. He was uh, totally thinking about himself, but he was pretty sophisticated in that he used uh, what the, what the uh, FBI lab called, uh, or the engineering department called a pitch modulator to change the pitch and cadence of his voice. Remember, this was before the, um, the days of cell phones, of course, and cell phone towers, 1985. Um, so uh, and he would call from uh, he would call from random uh, telephone booths in the area and know that he could stay on just long. Uh, he he knew he he knew that the the police obviously went after the first call would have a trap and trace on uh, on the Smiths line and he always knew to stay on just long enough so that. Um, so that he could get off before the trap and trace could work and the police could, uh, or the sheriff's department actually, Lexington Sheriff's Department, could get to the scene. So there were a number of cases where uh, the sheriff's uh, deputies and investigators got to uh, where, the, uh, where the call had taken place literally minutes after the uh, unknown subject had left. Okay. So this was a pretty this was a pretty sophisticated guy. Now listening to these uh, listening to these transcripts uh, to these phone calls and reading the transcripts, John could also figure out that he was pretty obsessive. Uh, his directions to uh, uh, to where to find the two bodies were very meticulous. Uh, if he was interrupted in the middle, he would have to start again. So you knew that this was a pretty obsessive, compulsive guy. And the more that they uh, could listen, the more they would they would learn about him. And uh, at a certain point, uh, John said down there, he said, well, maybe we can draw him out by having a um, memorial service at, uh, at Sherry's grave. And uh, and uh, have Dawn be the center of it, and you know we'll we'll survey the crowd. Now it just so happens uh, to get ahead of the story again when they um, um, when they did eventually find the guy. He had been at the memorial service, but uh-huh. the grave was so close to the uh, to the road that he was able to stay in his car and elude the police. Okay. It- uh, uh, let's talk about uh, you know the during the phone calls. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, trying to find uh, which one he he was talking. It started off talking with Mrs. Smith, and then Correct. Dawn. Uh, Started taking over the calls. What she she's like twenty one or something like that. Yeah, she was in she was in college at the time, and uh, and clearly he was, uh, uh, and and clearly he uh, the unsub became obsessed with Dawn and uh, and started uh, well really trying to create a relationship with her, and and yet the most chilling line of all of the calls is at a certain point he says to her something to the effect of you know don you can't be protected 24 hours a day um god wants you to join sherry fay uh sherry fay was her middle name they didn't use it but the, the the killer did and um so when he said god wants you to join 
Sherry Fay, both uh, the FBI and the Lexington County Sheriff's Department knew that she was in danger and she had to be watched all the time. Yeah, and he he, uh, substituted her name. He he screwed up on one call where he substituted her name Mm -hmm. for for Sherry's. And John, you and John kind of go into that where she seems like she's going to be. Maybe she was an original, the original target. Or well, you, you, it's it's possible. I think. I mean, what we have here again is, and you know, maybe this goes back to our original conversation about um, both the uh, the two whites who we just talked about mm-hmm. the uh, the prison guard and the uh, and the killer. Um, he had created this fantasy relationship with both of them, um, and uh, we suspect uh, retracing Sherry's last day. We suspect very strongly that he must have been following her. That he that he picked her up. Uh, visually at a certain place, probably at the shopping center where she met her mother to go to the post office uh, and the bank. Um, and he may have even followed her to the, uh, uh, to her, the swimming party and then, and then back again. So, uh, you know, he had somehow become obsessed with her and created this relationship, his own mind, mo- um, his own mind. And in some of these horrible calls where he's just totally full of himself, no compassion for his victims at all. He talks about their relationship and uh, how she willingly had sex with him, which was absolutely untrue, uh, no question about it, and uh, how they talked and uh, how she told him things. And so he had, uh, this was a guy who was just a total narcissist and uh uh that was clear from from the phone conversations and uh we know eventually this is um this would be how you would try to uh, get him and once the more you know about this guy the uh you know the easier it is to uh to try to formulate a strategy to uh to catch him okay and you know to catch him it, it was uh, uh, he, he had stopped using the you know, voice enhanced yeah. uh, on the phone call, but he was... yeah, which I think tells us that he's uh, you know he's getting he's gaining he's he's gaining more confidence, and at the same time he's getting a little sloppy because he now believes in his own omnipotence. He believes in his ability to evade law enforcement because. Remember, I think we talked about this last time I was on Mark. Uh, with each of these, uh, with with each of these violent predators, uh, you have a deep-seated sense of uh, inadequacy, together with a sense of entitlement and grandiosity, and a feeling that the world is not giving you what you deserve. And this is all triangulated with a sense of resentment that you are where you are in your life and not someplace better. And um, and that, that's in makings for a very dangerous uh, individual. Yeah, and with um, you know, this stop, he, he he stopped using the voice um, uh, uh, 
thing for the uh, phone calls, and they were eventually you know, uh, falling off. And well, and he also had uh, you know would be, have the situation with Deborah. Uh, his next victim going on mm-hmm. in, uh, uh, not long after that. So, That's so right. he has uh, uh, several things going on, and you know, the case is you know, kind of uh, going cold. And you know, to get some, uh, you know, like the fingerprints uh, on the phones weren't, uh, you know, they were wiped down. There, you know, there was nothing was yeah, showing which, up which there. Which again speaks speak to his, you know, criminal sophistication. Mm-hmm. So, so John doesn't have any new information to keep building on. So he he wants to uh, yeah. There's that uh, scene towards the uh, end of uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs, where you know, Jodie Foster goes into the the uh, was it Frederica's uh, bedroom and just kind of. Looks around and, yeah. all, and, yep. and and that's where she makes the realization. Of, you know, he's making a suit. What? Right. Uh, and uh, Sherry had the koala bears. Can Can you explain yeah. what what John and, and yeah the trouble like the real aggravation uh, or inner turmoil that John was going through to put Dawn through this. Yeah, John go. John meets with the parents, goes to uh, the Smith house, and uh, he uh, and he and his uh, fellow agent, who he uh, who he brings with him, uh, they go, they go into Sherry's bedroom, which is just the way it was, and they realize she has a collection of stuffed bears, uh, and he finds one that's small enough. Um, a koala bear that it's one of those that you know i think you 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 press its belly and its arms go up and it was very small and he said i'm going to take this i'm going to use it because and he made it uh, i think it was a mascot of uh, of um dawn's college if i remember correctly where where sherry was also planning on going in the fall and uh so he was decided well we'll use this in the uh um in in the memorial uh service that we're going to do and he had and he made a big point of having it attached to a flower left on uh, uh sherry's grave and uh the newspapers and the television stations covered it, and uh, what he was hoping is that uh, uh, that the killer would come and take it and 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 be surveilled. Uh, now that didn't happen, as I say, because the killer was uh, too afraid to get out of his car. But later on, when he was captured, um, that turned out to be a very significant moment in the interrogation. Yes. So, so he, uh, you know, the killer was. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to. This is not funny, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of tell the story without giving away all of the what happens next. So your, mm-hmm. uh, so your, your listeners and my readers won't be, uh, won't be disappointed. But uh, you know, the main thing is to tell the story truthfully and honestly mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, and 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 with the d- 
dignity and compassion that it deserves, and I hope we've done yeah. that. Yeah, it, okay, so as the, the uh, staged memorial service mm-hmm. uh, winds down, you know, we get the the uh, kidnapping of uh, Deborah, and, and there was actually a witness for that, and yeah, yeah that's where you know, uh, you, you know you bring in. Uh, Someone saw someone driving uh, recklessly right before Sherry would have gotten out of the car to get the mail at the mailbox. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and there, there we get, uh, okay, different uh, car. And that's why one, one of my favorite parts of you know, your uh, books is you, know, you get all you know, all these uh, interesting uh, analysis of you know the bad guy, uh, but you know my favorite part is you know where you and John write about the the guy drove a green sedan. Mm-hmm. It's like how, how do you figure that out? Well, you know, what's interesting is a lot of it seems like it's hocus-pocus, but it's not. You start looking at the personality, and you say, well, what kind of car would this – now, you you don't necessarily know that it's a green car. What you can figure out from the personality, is this going to be a dark-colored car? Is it going to be a light-colored car? Is it going to be – a, uh, is it going to be a new car or an older car? A lot of that is determined by whether you think this is a, uh, a sophisticated person who's who may have some money, or is this an old? Uh, is this a, a person who is probably just doing odd jobs or is unemployed? Um, does he have the means to be steadily employed? Um, and we knew we we figured from. Uh, uh, John figured from the uh, meticulousness of the uh, of the instructions that were given, the directions to both bodies, that this would be a very meticulous kind of guy. He'd be very organized, so his car would probably be a somewhat late model. It would be clean. Now we find out later he's sophisticated enough. He even changes the license plates on the car. So because uh, um, when Deborah May is uh, is abducted uh, and she's kicking and screaming and she's thrust into this car. Um, one of the witness that you described, he had a partial uh, license. He got a partial license number, so they at least knew what they were the kind of thing that they were looking for. So all of this adds up, and so this really, as I say, is a case where three important things come together. You have dogged detective work and investigative work by the uh, by the FBI and the Lexington County and the surrounding county sheriff's offices because because this actually ends up in three different counties in terms of both the uh, abductions and the uh, body dump sites you have uh, some really good behavioral profiling and you have some really good scientific analysis now those three things together uh, are what leads to the solution of this case. It's almost, it's almost a perfect example of uh, of these kind of elements uh, in in investigation working together. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, in the grim ledger of uh, of murder, this is a success story. I mean, two girls were killed, um, and probably 
who knows how many lives were saved because of this good detective work. And we also believe that we can't prove, we believe that this killer probably killed three women before. Um, he, we, we don't know that for sure, but uh, um, my guess, based on the evidence, is that he probably killed at least two of them. Okay. The case with Sherry seems to have really haunted uh, John because you uh, is it in Mind Hunter where that that case has a small write up in it and yes. you, you uh, uh, Okay, I, I I forget which book it was in. Uh, uh, I thought it might be in un, mentioned in Unabomber as well. But uh, um, okay, so it, it's also in Mind Hunter, and it it just seems like this is one of those cases where uh, it, it was very distressing for John. Yeah, yeah, and let me let me tell you a story about that, Mark, because it's, it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, after um, um, after our um, previous book, um, The Killer Across the Table, which is about uh, interviewing these kind of predators in prison, uh, we we chose four uh, four uh, uh, serial killers who were. Uh, uh, who who had been convicted and incarcerated, who John got to interview in depth to uh, to really understand what was going on in their minds and uh, the ultimate uh, the the ultimate goal of these uh, these prison interviews that he and uh, uh, Robert Ressler conducted in the uh, 70s and 80s, which re- really began the behavioral profiling program at the FBI. But the, the whole idea was to try to, for the first time, correlate what was going on in the offender's mind before, during, and after the offense so that uh, behavioral evidence left at the crime scene would start having some resonance and some meaning. So Anyway, that was that was uh, the killer across the table. Uh, so John and I were in New York uh, to promote that book, and we met with our editor, Matt Harper, and he said, you know, I'd like to do a, I'd like to begin a series with you guys of individual cases, uh, books of individual cases. Uh, everything you've done up until now has been about themes and larger issues. He said, but I think uh, I think there's really a readership for uh, for telling individual stories. And we said, well, it sounds like an interesting idea. Um, what did you What did you have in mind, Matt? And he said, well, you tell me. Uh, he said, uh, he said, what. Um, what 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 cases do you think would be the most interesting? And I said, well, tell me your criteria. And he, I said because each case tells us something different, and and they all build on each other, at least the important ones. And he said, well, I think what I'd like is which cases affected 
John the most, either in terms of emotionally or things that he learned, things that he was able to use, uh, the import of the case in terms of what it did, what it established, what it stopped. And so we thought for a few moments and we said, well, there's two that uh, that I can think of off the top of my head that really did affect him and uh, for, for different reasons. Um, I said one was the Joseph Paul Franklin uh, uh, murder spree because uh, what was important about that one was uh, not only did uh, uh, we uh, we capture a vicious and very prolific uh, and uh, very resourceful uh, assassin type killer, um, but also this is the kind of person who actually influenced other people like him, like Dylan Roof, for instance, uh, who you know who wanted to start his own race war. Um, so that affected him in in that regard. And then um, we said, and the Sherry Faye Smith and Deborah May Helmick uh, murders in South Carolina because uh, it was such a different kind of case, and because of Sherry's last will and testament, it shows just such courage and grace and faith unbelievable on the part of this 17 year old girl and the contrast with this absolutely vicious killer who you know who's just haunting in his uh let's let's call it what it is evil and uh so we said you know to, to start the series off those are the two cases which probably have the most uh, emotional resonance. So, yeah, I, I I agree with you, Mark. That's uh, these cases did have a profound emotional effect on John, and and that's really why we we chose to write about them. Yeah, you know, uh, it's uh, uh, you, know, you just mentioned theme, and uh, it, it, her case appears in other of your works, and, it, and it's not until you do uh, you know when a killer calls that you know, you fully explore it but it's uh yeah and we also really well you done. know but and this remove we also wanted to talk to dawn at this point and get her perspective uh from what she was doing and uh you know talk to um uh to other people uh talked a long time to ron walker who was the uh fbi agent who uh uh who uh, who accompanied John down there and, and helped out with the case. He was also involved with the interrogation of the uh, suspect once he was caught. And uh, so we really wanted to take a deep dive into this case and really show what this kind of investigation is all about and kind of give an almost, you know, rather than just an overview as we've done in some of the others in terms of the principles of profiling, we really wanted to sort of get into the, uh, the, the almost the minute by minute narrative of, of what happens next and how, how a, 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 a horrifying but successful investigation is carried out and then um the second part of the book is about the uh the trial and prosecution of uh of of this vicious killer and how to uh, there was no question uh once he was caught that he was uh that, that he was uh the killer the question was something that's this depraved could it be considered sane, or was this guy just insane? And um, John and um, 
the prosecutor, Donnie Myers, uh, really went to extreme uh, measures to, uh, to prove to the jury that, yes, this guy may have been mentally ill. He was certainly a wacko, but he knew what he was doing. He was, he was sane. He, uh, he understood right from wrong. He just didn't care. Uh, his, own, uh, his own goals and his own, uh, uh, his own ego were more important to him. Yeah, well, and you know when you look at how he was uh, adapting the phone to uh, cover his voice, right, and wiping down the uh, phone after mm-hmm. he uh, was calling the Smith family, uh, mm-hmm. he, he knew what he was doing. You bet. Uh, you know, he he kind of really can't feel too sorry for him or uh, believe in. You know, and he did. He did really weird things in in court. Um, at one point, yeah. he got up and he 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 said he wanted Don Smith to marry him and all that. And you know, this is two things. First of all, he's trying to show I think that he is. Um, wacko but uh, also this is just his absolute ego i mean he had this is the the trial is almost like the phone calls he had this he was the center of everybody's attention and that was uh, that was very important to him i mean this guy was a total narcissist okay and, and yeah uh, uh the, you know since you have done you know the killer shadow Mm-hmm. And uh, when a killer calls, uh, did Matt talk, talk you into doing a third one? We're talking about it now. Um, okay. We have we have one in mind. I don't want to say anything about it, but we uh, we we have one in mind if we uh, if we go forward with this series. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, it's, and again, it's a completely it's a completely different kind of case, which uh, shows a different kind of killer and uh and a different kind of investigation so um you know i hope i hope you one can learn something new and uh and and hear a different different kind of story with each of our books okay uh what uh you're you're welcome to come back on and talk talk about uh the the new one when it comes out yeah all i have to do is write it first <laughs> <laughs> That sometimes takes me well, a while. <laughs> okay. But it, it, and speaking of other themes, it, um, uh-huh. it, you, know, you do have in the Unabomber book as well mm-hmm. as in uh, When a Killer Calls, uh, the uh, uh, John's investigations into signatures versus M.O. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, can, can you explain that? That uh, that's yeah, absolutely. To... Um, the most people know about MO or modus operandi, which is basically the way an offender goes about committing a crime, and that is if the if the criminal is successful. In other words, if he continues to get away uh, and evade capture. His MO is going to evolve. He's going to he's learning from what he does. Um, a bank robber, you know, might learn uh, that he should cover the uh, the surveillance camera or have a getaway car or whatever. Um, and 
uh, killers learn the same kind of thing in terms of how to dispose of body so that it doesn't get uh, uh, doesn't get found out. But then we have another element uh, which we call signature, and signature is the emotional component of the crime. It is the essence of why the criminal is doing it. It's closely aligned to motive, but it's not exactly motive because it's what the killer can't get away from. Uh, in other words, uh, the uh, let's say uh, we've already we've already talked about uh, uh, Sherry's uh, and Deborah's killers. Uh, um, Mo, which was he would you know he learned to use a voice modulator. He would keep his calls short. He would call from uh, he would call from strange locations. He would wipe down uh, he would wipe down the phone. He changed cars. He changed license plates. All kinds of things like that. That's mo uh, modus operandi. Um, what was signature about him was his need to possess these girls to uh, want to almost mix his soul with theirs uh, and to be uh, considered important and an important part of their lives and to absolutely manipulate, dominate, and control them. That's signature, and that's the kind of thing that doesn't change. That doesn't evolve. Uh, for some people, uh, you you look at some, some of the really vicious criminals like uh, Stephen Pinnell, the, uh, I think he was called the I-40 uh, killer in Delaware. He would pick up prostitutes uh, on the side of the road uh, and uh, as he, was a, he was a truck driver and uh, he would torture them before he killed them. That was his signature because that's what was important to him. That was the emotional component that gave him a sense of power and control. And in his case, um, the way he dumped the bodies uh, was not really M.O. That was part of his signature, too. He left them. He just dumped them on the side of the road in the open just to show his contempt for them. So, you know, each element of something can be both a uh, uh, can be either a signature or an MO, sometimes both. And it takes a very discerning uh, investigator to know the difference. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, okay. uh, we, we, we cite uh, two bank robberies in two different places. Now, they seem on their surface to be uh, absolutely similar cases. The uh, the bank robber made the uh, made the uh, person, the bank personnel, and the uh, and the customers strip naked. Now you think, well, that's pretty weird. Um, and yet, when they're both caught, and yet in one case, he took picture. The, the offender took pictures of them. In another, he didn't. Now, what's the difference between these two? Um, in the one who took oh. the one who took pictures, that sense of control, that sense of domination, that sense of humiliation, and controlling all of these people and making them do something totally humiliating, totally embarrassing, that was what was important to him. The bank robbery was nice, and he got money out of it, but controlling these uh, people uh, and humiliating them, humiliating these decent, ordinary uh, citizens 
was what was what he got off on. That was signature. Now you look at the other case, uh, which takes place. That one was in Texas, by the way. This one takes place. The other one takes place in in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, if I remember correctly. And what he was doing by making the uh, patrons take their clothes off and making the staff take their clothes off is. They're so embarrassed. They're looking down at the ground. They don't. They can't identify him. When the police come oh. and uh, when the police come and uh, ask for a description, they can't give one. So in that in his, this case, that's mo because he had learned that if he forced them to do something embarrassing and humiliating, uh, they wouldn't want to look up. They wouldn't want to look at him. They wouldn't want to look at each other, and uh, that foiled uh, identification. So you've got again a, a similar technique, but it's interpreted in an entirely different way. Oh, okay. That just uh, sounds very effective. Yeah, unfortunately, it was. Okay. It, okay. And okay, since we're um, looking at you know the modus operandi and signatures, um, mm-hmm. when you look at several of your works, you mm-hmm. get. Uh, say with uh, you know, the Jack the Ripper case, that you get uh-huh. into a little bit in uh, Mind Hunter. Uh, yeah, and and we actually we we do we do a long take on um, Jack the Ripper in the cases that haunt us, uh, which mm-hmm. is the first case we we talk about in the cases that haunt us too. Okay, so so uh, you know with. Oh, uh, it, w- w- was Mary Chapman the last one? Uh, Mary, uh, yeah, Mary Kelly, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, You're talking okay. about Jack the Ripper? Yes. Yeah, I think it, it's Mary Kelly, but uh, 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 we'd have to okay, look that uh, up. Yeah, I, 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 I just um, forgot off the top of my head, but um, yeah, but yeah, that was you know really. Uh, you know, he he spent time. Oh yeah, with yeah. her. Okay, and it was and it was the and it was the first of the cases that was actually done indoors too. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that's the that, that's the one I, I'm talking about. So yeah, and with the cases in, um, when a killer calls, it, there there's a closeness to the victim. Yeah, in uh, say the killer's shadow. Um, yeah, exact you know, Fra- opposite. Yeah. yeah, Franklin is shooting. Uh, you start off with him shooting up a synagogue from right. several blocks away, and right. th- then in in your Unabomber book, uh, you know the packages. You know, Ted, Ted Kaczynski is mailing the packages. Hundreds of miles away. Uh, right. I, I, some, sometimes he's mailing them to the wrong address. Mm-hmm. People are, are uh, unknowingly forwarding since, since the intended target no longer works at that university. They're they're forwarding it to where the uh, guy works. 
and uh, they don't know what they're doing. And it, it, yeah, so 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 they're the package is making trips an extra couple hundred miles longer than the original uh, you know, uh, mailing route. But there's this uh, difference. Uh, what I think is really interesting is all these different uh, proximities, very close yeah. or uh very long distance. Oh, oh, right. What What did John? Are you and John? Uh, you know, learn about uh, distance killings. Well, it shows. It it really it shows the kind of personality we're talking about. Now, uh, in when a killer calls, these call these uh, uh, murders are up close and personal. They're. Uh, very close confines. Uh, the killer obviously spends time with the victims ahead of time. In um, in uh, the Unabomber's case, he may or may not even know the person. He uh, he doesn't really uh, he, he he doesn't really personalize them. He impersonalizes them. He's cowardly in the sense that he does not confront his victims uh and you've got something very similar with timothy mcveigh when he blows up the uh, murrah federal building in oklahoma city i mean he, he even kills children he doesn't know who he's going to kill it's just an it's just an act of uh of whatever you want to call it uh, resentment hatred anti-government feeling but again personal inadequacy and he has completely depersonalized his victims. So this is a this is a different kind of person. Now, um, and it just it with Joseph Paul Franklin. One of the reasons he's so scary is you've got all of these mixed together. He's a sniper. He's he's very good with the sniper rifle. He can shoot from as you say from hundreds of yards away. He also kills uh, several people in a parking lot close up when he sees uh, when when he sees um, a mixed race couple he doesn't like. Uh, he uh, he also picks up hitchhikers from time to time and. Uh, and he profiles them. Uh, he decides whether, if, if he finds out that they these white girls who he thinks need to be protected, but if they have uh, had any kind of uh, relationship with a black man, then he decides, well, they need to be punished. So he he kills them, and he kills them close up. He's also he also bombs a couple of places. So this guy is mission oriented in the sense that. You know, he always kills the kind of person he wants. He doesn't know them in most cases. Uh, in a few cases that he tries to kill people, like uh, Larry Flint, the um, the publisher of Hustler magazine, pornographic magazine, uh, who he tries to kill, he doesn't, but he uh, he wounds him to the point that he is a paraplegic for the and in pain for the rest of his life. He tries to kill civil rights leader and uh, lawyer Vernon Jordan. Uh, again, almost kills him. Jordan's in the hospital for months afterwards, but but he lives. Um, but in most cases, uh, uh, Franklin doesn't even know the people that he is uh, th that he is trying to uh, th that he is trying to kill. It's just it's all symbolic to him. So you've really got different kinds of uh, 
uh, killers. And an assassin like Mark David Chapman, who kills John Lennon, um, he feels so inadequate that if he can combine himself with Lennon and uh, if he if Lennon is this powerful and he has the power to end his life, that makes him powerful, too. Uh, so each of these shows a, a different kind of personality and in terms of what you call you know the remote or distant nature of it a lot of it has to do with what kind of uh, skills these people happen to have if uh, somebody is good with a uh, with a gun as franklin was um he he uses it as a sniper um Ted Kaczynski, probably the smartest of all these guys, um, is so smart, he can make bombs, and he makes bombs even more intricate than he has to. That's signature, not a modus operandi, because he takes pride in in these bombs that he's making, and he's doing it from, uh, he's doing it from a distance. Whereas you've got Timothy McVeigh, he takes a paddle truck and fills it full of fertilizer, which is the fuel that he uses. Um, uh, you know, basically a truck full of manure, and that's how he blows up the uh, the federal building in Oklahoma City. So a lot of it has to do with the individual uh, talents or skills that each of these people have. Uh, so the distinction to me is not so much the weapon that they use. It's what you said originally. It's Is it up close and personal? Is it middle distance? Is it far away where you may not even know uh, the personalities or the individuality of, of your victims? Um, you know, what, what is it? What is, that tells you a lot about the, uh, the kind of uh, killer or uh, offender you're talking about. So, yeah, I think when you mention uh, the distance involved between the subject and the uh, offender, I think you're really on to something. Yeah, and you know, you're while you were talking about um, some of the you know, different uh, personality traits, uh, you know, a lot most of these guys are uh, very inadequate, but right. you know, they kind of compensate with the uh, you know big ego. But yeah, in fact, Mark, compensation is a very good word to describe them. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of a lot of these people really are compensating or trying to compensate in their own mind for their own inadequacies. Yeah, and you know, you write in your Unabomber uh, in this communication, they almost always use the plural "we" or "our." to imply that they are part of a larger group or organization. Right. Yeah. In fact, you even, you even see that in the, uh, in the John Benet Ramsey ransom note. Um, Clearly this is one person we're talking about, whoever, uh, whoever the killer ultimately turns out to be, but it starts, you know, we are a small foreign faction and all that. Um, Yeah. uh, The, the, the plural, uh, gives the offender more of a sense of strength and belonging and mm-hmm. and forcefulness. Uh, the exception to this is uh, Joseph Paul Franklin, uh, the focus of the killer's shadow. He belongs to all of these organizations like 
the American Nazi Party, the National States Rights Party, the Ku Klux Klan, and he leaves them all. I mean, first of all, he's paranoid, which is understandable. I mean, all of these groups were at the time in the uh, 1970s and 80s were infiltrated by the FBI and, and, and local law enforcement agencies. But what he really doesn't like, the reason he leaves is these people are all talk. They talk about the black problem and the Jewish problem and how the Jews are running the media over the world and they're international bankers and they're using the black race as dupes and all of that, you know, horrible stuff. Um, and yet they all talk about it. They drink and they talk about it and they pass out their pamphlets, but they don't do anything. And Franklin uh, says, well, I, you know, this is not accomplishing anything. And these people are all talk and I, I'm moving beyond that. So he goes out on his own. He becomes a lone wolf, as we call them. And these are in some ways the most dangerous people of all because they're not part of an organization. They're hard to predict. They work on their own. And the thing about Franklin was he was very mobile. I mean, he moved all over the country. He had disguises. He had different license plates. He had all kinds of uh, fake IDs. And he was very mobile. And he had cash because he was good at uh, robbing banks. And so one of the uh, one of the things that John had to try to do, and fortunately he did successfully, was when they got, when he was assigned to do this fugitive assessment by the FBI's Civil Rights Division, he said, all right, this guy's going to go back to where he uh, feels most comfortable. And uh, they knew enough about his background and had interviewed a couple of members of his family that they could predict what he was going to do and where he was going to be. And they knew, and John knew that Knowing that people were after him, he couldn't take a chance on robbing a bank because uh, that would there was just too much chance of being uh, caught. Uh, but the one thing they also knew about him was that when he got desperate, he would go to blood banks and sell his blood. So they uh, they targeted a number of blood banks in the South near where they where his home had been in Alabama and uh, along the. Uh, Florida Panhandle and start and and circulated his picture uh, and and when he went actually then as predicted he went into one of these blood banks and that's how they caught him. Okay, and I have uh, one one of the listeners chimed in with uh, this is a fascinating show. So, oh, thank you, listener, whoever you are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But also, what I find interesting, uh, you know, about the diversity of your books is there. There are the I I don't know what the you know John's official uh, term is. I just call it like post mortem communications. But you, know, you get those letters from Jack the Ripper and the message on the uh, wall is something like the, the Jews are not to be blamed for nothing. Yeah. I, I don't yeah that and then the letters to the yeah what uh, London Times or whatever it's called. Uh, yeah. it, you know, the, the calls to the Smith house, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, 
the Unabomber manifesto. Uh, I think uh, did, uh, I think the son of Sam had some. You uh, bet. You're right. Yeah. So so you know there was he, a, he wrote he he wrote to a number of people, including. Um, the uh, Joseph Borelli, the uh, the detective who was uh, who was the lead detective on the case, who who by the way uh, I interviewed later on, um, he eventually became the chief of detectives for the NYPD. But you're right. Oh, he uh, all these guys, um, and uh, same with uh, same with Dennis Rader, the uh, BTK Strangler. Oh. Uh, a lot of them, uh, a, a lot of them do. Uh, Communicate with either the press or the uh, uh, or or the police in in some way, and you know they they obviously don't want to be caught, but they also want the recognition. I mean, both the BTK Strangler and the Son of Sam. They in in these communications you're talking about, they proclaimed their own nicknames. They wanted that recognition. Now, the exception to this, I believe, uh, is Jack the Ripper, the, because we, uh, you know, I went to Scotland Yard and I, I spent a lot of time researching this case and talking to a number of detectives there and uh, uh, spending a fair amount of time with the uh, with a former uh, homicide detective who was the curator of their museum of crime, the so-called Black Museum at Scotland Yard, and. Um, I became convinced, and I think John, along with me, that the letter that um, uh, that gave the name Jack the Ripper, the so-called "Dear Boss" letter, um, we believe was a fake. We believe that uh, it was written probably by one of the uh, journalists at the time to gin up uh, interest. Now, the other letter that came in, the one that was. Uh, that was labeled from hell and has a much uh, sloppier uh, writing and also uh, uh, includes part of a human kidney in, uh, in the mm-hmm. letter that we believe was, was real. Um, but what's interesting is unlike the others I, I mentioned, we don't believe that the man who is ultimately known as Jack the Ripper ever thought of himself that way or ever called himself Jack the Ripper despite that dear boss letter but but you're right in in general a lot of these guys do want the uh do want the recognition and you know think that they may not be getting uh uh the glory if you will that uh, some of their uh their peers had had been doing and um and a lot of them do look to others uh uh, as their role models. Uh, interestingly, Joseph Paul Franklin uh, kind of looked up and really admired Charles Manson because he really believed that uh, Charles Manson wanted to start a race war, which was exactly what uh, what he wanted to do. And what's interesting okay. is then when you get to Dylan Roof, uh, who uh, kills uh, all of the people in the uh, in the uh, South Carolina. Um, uh, a church. Um, he is. He's like uh, 
Joseph Paul Franklin's spiritual child. I mean, he wants to create a race war too. He didn't know these people. He didn't. He didn't have any personal animosity against them, except for the fact that they were African American, and he really wasn't even concerned about being caught and put in jail and sentenced to death because he was convinced, as was Franklin, that when the race war that he helped to foment actually happened. Um, you know, the, all of his confreres would break him out of uh, prison and he would become a great hero. Okay. You just mentioned, you know, the Franklin getting inspiration from uh, Manson. And you also bring up the interesting points that, uh, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing happened. Uh, yeah, the World Trade, the first World Trade Center uh, explosion in the basement. Yeah, and, in the parking garage. They, yeah, 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 and, and then the Unabomber. Uh, There's one of the Unabomber uh, cases happened right after the Oklahoma City one, and. It, it, uh, I think you say, say something like uh, uh, he didn't want. And, to be and excuse outdone. me, Mark, but also did, didn't the, didn't the Oklahoma City bombing happen on one of the anniversaries of the Waco uh, tragedy? Uh, uh, I, I think it. I think did. so. Yeah. And, and then, so in other words, the, the the date wasn't wasn't accidental. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there was. I uh, forget. Oh, gee. now I have to dig, dig through my notes real. Someone go on a rant. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty there. sure about that. I just don't remember which anniversary it was. It, yeah, but there, yeah, there was. Uh, 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 I I was looking for the uh, that that passage uh, uh, where uh, you, you you were saying like the the Unabomber. Uh, a, Example from that uh, April uh, April case of ninety three or whenever it was. Yeah. Uh, it, was that a copycat or was he not wanting to be outdone uh, by the, the recent examples? So, Good question. Yeah, you know, I, honest, I honestly don't remember. That was a long time ago, and I, I haven't looked at that case lately, but okay. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you're correct. Okay, you know, it's, um, I'll try to find it here in my notes, and, well, I'll, I'll try to come back to I mean, that's the that other one. thing you have to, you know, when when you've looked at this many cases, um, you know, there are a lot of them that are obviously distinct, and we, we do learn something different from each one, but there are so many details of uh, these cases that it's sometimes hard for writers like me and the detectives to keep them straight. For instance, in The Killer's Shadow, I, I kept thinking I was being confused, and it turns out that crimes in two different states. I can't even tell you the, uh, at this point, I can't even remember which states. I think Tennessee was one of them. I'm not sure the, the other, but in any event, uh, in two different cities, uh, 
both counties had the same name. And I kept saying, wait a minute, so-and-so is the prosecutor of this county. Not so. And then I, and then suddenly I realized we're talking about two different counties in two different states. They just happen to have the same name. So, you know, it, it can get, <laughs> it can get very uh, confusing and, you know, you have to sort of make flow charts for yourself to keep them all straight. In fact, our, our research assistant, uh, Ann Hennigan, when we were doing The Killer's Shadow, I mean, she had to actually do a timeline for us of of this three-year killing spree because it was so complex and he moved so much and he used so many different um, uh, modes of killing and uh, that it, it was, uh, and there were so many different prosecutions that it was really hard to keep them all straight. I mean, which is pretty terrifying when you think about it. Okay, I think I found the passage. Um, okay. Significantly, this event occurred just five days after the deadliest incident of terrorism in American history, the horrific bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, which killed 168 people. After this bombing, apparently for the sake of his ego, the Unabomber had to get back in control. He had to show the public that the Oklahoma bombers were Johnny-come-latelys and amateurs while he was the experienced professional. Bombing was the thing that defined this otherwise insignificant nobody in the public's mind. He couldn't let anyone else steal his thunder. Okay, that's great. I'm glad you found that, and, uh, and now that I know that, I certainly stand by it. Okay, I, 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 it just took me a second. I mean, that's to... that's good sleuthing on your part. I gotta say, <laughs> but it, it, it's just really interesting that so many of these uh, people you're profiling. Uh, you know, we can go back to, like you said, you know, the dear boss uh, yeah. letter and the you know, uh, the the, the uh, one with the. A kidney. Uh, yeah, the, you know, you the from hell whole, letter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, from, from hell. Uh, yeah, the Unabomber is trying to. Uh, he's a trying to get his manifesto published in the New right. York Times. It, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Penthouse magazine. You know, says, you know, okay, we'll you know print parts of it. You know, once a month, uh, and. At least the Unabomber uh, Ted didn't you know want to have his you know, uh, manuscript printed in porno ma magazine and it's like second rate <laughs> place. So it, it it's actually pretty interesting when you just look at over 140 years of all these. Uh, Serial killers and the need for uh, 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 approaching a newspaper or some kind of publication to get their name out there uh, about their demands or what they're going to do next. Yeah. Well, and yeah, you're absolutely right. And somebody like Ted Kaczynski, who's extremely smart, um, one of the very few. Uh, uh, serial killers uh of of any sort who really has a genius IQ i mean he's very mixed up mentally 
but uh yeah he wanted this out there and there was uh there was a lot of discussion within the FBI and within the uh uh executive suites of both the uh, Washington Post and the New York Times about whether they should accede to this demand i mean was this extortion if you will and in a way it was but uh the uh, FBI, uh, and I know the people who made the decision, uh, finally came to the conclusion that, yeah, if we publish this, um, somebody may recognize it, and you know, the public can be our greatest uh, can be our can be our greatest partner in this. And as we all know, that's exactly what happened. Um, Ted's brother David, uh, who came from a very similar background and with a lot of the similar emotional stresses and ended up completely different. Uh, instead of becoming a um, serial bomber, he becomes a social worker. Uh, he and his wife uh, recognized, gee, this sounds a lot like Ted. And um, that's how the case ultimately was uh, was cracked. Uh, and to this day, you know, I've spoken to David, and to this day, Ted won't have anything to do with him. I mean, he considers that uh, David betrayed him uh, when, in fact, David um, was very courageous and uh, and performed an amazing uh, public service. Um, Another interesting aspect of uh, Ted's uh, Ted Kaczynski's mind that very intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, but y- you also uh, brought up uh, misguided. Um, you, you you published his whole uh, manifesto. Yeah, it's just full of this uh, like hatred for uh, industrialization, technology, mm-hmm. like uh, elites and class warfare type uh, philosophies. Uh, you know, he talks about like uh, some of those people. People have feelings of inferiority. Who uh, find a sample? Um, the two psychological tendencies that underlie modern leftism we call feelings of inferiority and over socialization. Yeah, I just yeah. Phrases like. Yeah, and you know, and he's he's not wrong about all of this. I mean, some yeah. of these uh, some some of these criticisms, you know, have some weight to them. But first of all, this just goes all over the place. I mean, he's just spewing at everything. And also, you don't solve these problems by sending bombs to kill people. Um, so, you know, uh, that's where. You know the the psychopathology comes in, and the fact that uh, remember this guy who's he's railing against uh, technology and all of the appurtenances of modern life, and he's living in a one room cabin in the woods of Montana by himself because he has no social skills, and uh, you 
you know, he's uh, he's totally inadequate. I mean, I think one of the, you know, it's kind of a glib way of saying it, but I think one of the most uh, revealing lines of, of that whole book that we wrote was during the 1967 Summer of Love, uh, Ted Kaczynski didn't have a single date. I mean, that tells as much about him as the manifesto does. Mm-hmm. And, and all, almost all the characters, or, or the you know, your main bad guy in all your books uh-huh. is such a person, really socially inadequate. The, yeah. Uh, he he had what a cat skin in a girl's locker, and and it just shows how socially immature he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and what's also interesting, uh, a little off point, but uh, you know, most of these guys are willing to talk at some point, uh, particularly to John because he's got that reputation and he knows a lot about it. We've approached Kaczynski several times. And and he refuses to talk to us or anybody else for that matter. Hmm. Okay, what uh, is is he that? Uh, I think he is. He is very controlling, and he is uh, he is a total loner, and he doesn't want to give up anything of himself, and he's. In a maximum security prison for the rest of his life, he knows that, and uh, I don't think he wants to have anything to do with anybody who uh, uh, helps put him there. And anybody in law enforcement fits in, particularly in the FBI, fits into that category. And as I say, he won't even communicate with his brother, who uh, who made a deal with the authorities that before he would turn him in, uh, he wanted a guarantee that uh, they wouldn't pursue uh, uh, the death penalty against his brother. So, um, but that didn't cut any weight with Ted. He still won't talk to David or David's wife. Okay. Yeah, and it, you know, just to tie up a point from you know, the beginning of the show, uh, you know, when uh, it, during the last show, uh, you know, Roger Pickenpaul was uh, talking a little bit about what. Uh, went into the making of a presidential assassin uh-huh. and it, what Roger uh, discovered after re- reading all the doctors the uh, reports uh, after speaking with uh, Leon Chul- Chulgosh um, it, it, it was he was basically ha- had this uh, like I, I, I don't know what you call it, like a leftist type, Marxist type indoctrination, and, and it's almost like the same thing that is found in the Unabomber Manifesto. Yeah, it kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah, it, 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 it really, it, 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 and that was one of the things. You know, Senator, you know, uh, going. Went through your book and was like, oh, the, you know, the th- things would be so much better off if we just w- went back to like being 
of like an agricultural society and you know the prehistoric people and uh, hatred for the industrial revolution you know types uh rants uh it, it, and you know Roger said uh, you know just, you know you know he, humans really haven't changed much over a long period of time yeah, and you know, I don't know I don't know that much about Leon Shulgash, but I suspect you know that uh, you do have some similarities with people like uh, Ted Kaczynski and uh, other you know anti um, you know industrial revolution types, whatever you want to call it, anti-establishment. In that they feel you know in this big industrial complex they feel totally inadequate or uh you know almost forgotten if you will so uh you know i think uh again i i would uh i would stress in any kind of assassin or you know, and you and you have to consider somebody like Kaczynski an assassin type personality too because as you say they do things from far away um I would, um, yeah, I, I would say that uh, you know this feeling of inadequacy in in the in the big picture of society and not feeling they're getting their own due. And in fact, um, um, Garfield's assassin, as I recall, was somebody who felt, for no logical reason, that he was entitled to some big uh, political appointment. And uh, and and shot Garfield because uh, he was disappointed that he didn't get this appointment. So again, there's somebody who feels deeply inadequate and at the same time completely entitled. Mm-hmm. So so there's a theme that you know just keeps running through these guys. Yeah, it, it, and that's what you know, I keep learning as. You present more examples, and it's uh, uh, it, it's a fascin it, it it just becomes a fascinating subject. Well, again, and, there's your there's your human condition, Mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why people uh, do like the crime, uh, true crime genre. It, it, it's it, it's it's like somewhat related to what we were just discussing. It, um, in you know the killer's shadow, um, you know pretty much know you know right right there in the first couple pages uh, who the uh, bad guy is. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. In uh, when a killer calls. Uh, you don't know until halfway through the book. What right. is your approach to writing? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, and I, it, I, I and I think I actually can. In those two examples, I think I can give you a very definitive answer, which is that we try to write the book given the knowledge that. John, as the investigator, the profiler, had at the time. So in other words, when uh, in the killer calls, he didn't know who the unsub was. He didn't know much about him. And in the, in the course of the investigation, he learned as much as he could. Um, in the case of uh, 
the killer's shadow, uh, he he knew right away the name of uh, uh, Joseph Paul Franklin. What we didn't know is where he was, what he was planning to do next, and how many crimes he had committed. Now, it turns out he murdered like 22 people, uh, but nobody knew that at the time. So, so in terms of my approach to writing it, it's what is what does our main character John know, and the reader should know at the moment that he knows, and not before. So I think that's an answer to your question. Okay, yeah, it, it, it's uh, um, both well, mainly a, a lot of a lot of your books are like a whodunit an Agatha Christie type uh, book, but you know, you can change up the style where, okay, you know who the unsub is on page one. Well, how do you, it's not a mystery. No, Uh, you know, I guess there's different kinds of mysteries, which the mystery is, okay, are we going to catch this guy? Why did he do it? What did he do? How are they going to prosecute him? So I guess you know, the theme that probably runs through all of them, as you say, different books have different needs depending on uh, where they, where the starting point is. But what I always try to do is sort of follow the dictum of I want the reader to always want to know what happens next, you know, to, to turn the page. What happens on the next page? What happens in the next scene in the book? And I figure as, as long as I can have the reader wanting to know just as the detective or the profiler or the investigator wants to know what happens next, how do you? Then I think you know the the book will have have its own narrative thrust. Okay, and it, um, I just looked at the clock. We we have like about fifteen minutes, uh-huh. um, but uh, um, I think one of the one of the things I wanted to um, you know, kind of end with was on 408 of Mindhunter was that uh, so what I truly believe is that along with more money and police and prisons what we most need more of is love um, well I I think that's true and you know I and and the word I would use along with love is empathy and I think one of the things that we try to do in these books is give a sense of empathy for other people, for um, certainly not empathy for the killers or offenders, uh, the predators, but an understanding of why they work, but certainly an empathy for the victims and an empathy for the people who try to bring them justice. And so, um, yeah, I do believe if uh, there was um, more love and uh, less tension and uh, divisiveness in society, uh, we'd all be a lot better off. Yeah. Uh, So I, uh, I definitely subscribe to that, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think a lot of people uh, wouldn't be expecting 
uh, you two, uh, you and John, throw that out that, uh, as a wrap up to the book, but there, there it is, and um, it, uh, and they go on to say this is not being simplistic. It's at the very heart of the issue. It's uh, despite all the. Horrible stuff that happens. You, know, you, you are uh, working in solutions to some of these problems, and even with a character like Dawn from When a Killer Calls, uh, yeah, yeah, she really showed. Uh, a lot of courage and growth as a character where you know she's in her uh, 2021 uh, mm-hmm. um and she's kind of taken over or she's picking up the phone more frequently than her mom and it's, and she she just becomes more uh, mm-hmm. uh of this uh de- family representative yeah, and, and to this day, she's uh, she is um, like a lay minister. She has her she has her own ministry where she sings, speaks to churches and other religious organizations, uh, and she's really tried to um, carry on um, her sister's legacy. And I think she's done a very good job of it. It's very it's very hard, but uh, you know she uh, she is a woman of faith. Uh, much more faith than I have. I have to admit, I uh, I admire it. I wish I had that kind of faith. I um, I don't. But uh, um, you know, I think she has uh, um, she has let this tragedy um, you know lead her lead her in very noble ways. And I find with um, with many of the families of murder victims that I've gotten to know very well and that John's gotten to know very well, um, they really turn their grief in many cases to very positive things in terms of trying to change laws, to protect uh, children, uh, all kinds of things. I mean, I could I could probably cite you five or ten examples just off the top of my head, but suffice it to say, um, I'm just in total awe and admiration for these people who are able to turn their grief into something so constructive. Uh, and uh, even um, Sherry's and Dawn's parents, uh, her, her mother has, has unfortunately died of cancer um, several years ago. But uh, until that time, uh, both of them would, uh, would, would counsel uh, uh, the families of of murder victims and try to help them through the ordeal. And uh, not only did they go to Cherry's trial, which was of course uh, uh, very very horrendous and heartrending, they were every day at uh, Deborah Helmick's trial as well, and trying to support uh, her family. Yeah, it, 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 it's really. Uh... An interesting contrast where you have uh, with Bell having two murders 
uh, going on close together, and yeah. he's starting to mentally de de compensate. Uh, Dawn is actually uh, uh, like dominating him in the phone, phone call. Like he, yeah, he's... you're 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 right. You're right. Um, it's almost as if as he gets more vulnerable, she gets stronger. That's a that's a very yeah. good. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good uh, um, observation. I, th- I think it's I think it's very true. Um, which also which shows both Dawn's faith and and her determination. Because um, I mean, I you know, having talked to her about it, I I can tell you it was gut wrenching. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the uh, scene in the uh, auxiliary trailer where yeah. they get uh, Mrs. Smith and Dawn. Uh, to actually confront him, yeah, yeah, uh, it's super. And what's, wise. and what's interesting is, uh, if I can just you know add one sure. thing, since we've already mentioned the name Larry Jean Bell now, who is who is in fact turns out to be the killer. Um, when um, uh, when they're interrogating him and they interrogate him for a long time, I think it just John says, um, you know, did when without. You know he doesn't even want to admit that uh, he's the killer, obviously. Uh, but John says to him, "Well, did you? When did you start feeling badly about uh, the murder?" And he said, "When I saw the in the memorial service at the cemetery." So it did get to him clearly. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, with you know the koala bear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that. Yeah, I think uh, you and John have something really interesting going on. And with the Bell with the in his car at the stage memorial service. Yeah, uh, uh, readers of your Mind Hunter can also uh, learn that uh, that's actually pretty uh, a pretty normal uh, uh, behavior for the unsub. Is like a lot of times they talked, uh, uh, walk down the street and ask the. you know the police officer. Yeah, uh, they 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 try to insinuate themselves into the investigation. Absolutely. It, yeah, uh, it, it 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 just seems like you know the, the, these phrases like oh you know the guy uh, you know returns to the scene of the crime. Well, there, yeah. there, there's something to that. That's not a new. You know, John didn't just discover it. it no, it's no. Like, there's yeah this goes like old wise tales but John you know gives you you know and there's different reasons to return to the scene of the crime so in other words the behavioral evidence that you find there can tell you a lot about him I mean did the person return out of a sense of guilt 
or uh, remorse. Sometimes you can tell from that. Uh, sometimes um, you can see. Uh, I, I remember a case that we uh, we did in uh, Idaho where the uh, the killer was returning to the scenes of the crimes to the body, actually to the body dump sites, so that he could masturbate on the uh, on the victims' bodies. I mean, to show both his contempt for them, but also his possession of them. So, you know, you can it it, it it's a cliche that they return to the scene of the crime, but often they do, but for for sometimes very different behavioral reasons. Wow, well, I think um, this has really been a fascinating show. It, um, you know, and I think uh, you know I, I've only done a few of, of my questions. I've so, so many more, but um, <laughs> but um, you know, John does think very strongly about the uh, victim impact statements. Yes, yes, and I, you know, in the in the few minutes we have left, uh, I, I think I can I can say how we feel about that, which is uh, the criti- the critics of victim impact statements say that well, it 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 makes the playing field un unlevel because the uh, the uh, convict or the offender should just be judged on the crime, not on the people around him, because each crime has a different set of victims and all of that. Um, we feel differently. We feel that when you commit a violent crime, you are creating a relationship. It's a relationship that the victim and the victim's family certainly did not want, but it's a relationship nonetheless. So where do you get off saying that the other party to this relationship has no say in the outcome? And it's as simple as that. Okay, in, yeah, other no. words, in other words, if... Uh, if you've done something to me because you've hurt somebody who's very close to me, um, I should be able to tell the jury or the judge or whoever's deciding on the punishment, I should be able to tell you what the impact has been, and that should be figured in to the sentence. And as I say, it's as mm-hmm. simple as that. No, no, I thought uh, uh, that was another um, excellent point. That's brought brought up, and you know, uh, is it? You know, we, we have like two minutes left. I hate, hate to yeah go, go into anything else. It's like you know, this is like one of those you know kind of shows where uh, I'm surrounded by like five books. You know, it's like. Uh, uh, why don't you why don't you read War and Peace and you know, we'll, we'll, yeah we'll talk about it next week. Oh yeah, c- yes. come on, Paul, you, you, get, get, give me a little bit more time than you know. War and Peace is not a bathroom book. No, it's not. But uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I hope. Uh, you know, Fortunately, our books are a lot shorter than War and Peace. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is. Uh, been a uh, you know Ramona really appreciated uh, 
your information as well, and uh, you, you have a, a terrific in, industry going on with all, all these uh, books. It just gives you all these new insights into what people are doing. Different, uh, you know, why why they might be taking the, uh, you know, these certain actions. It, it's uh, and I, I've really enjoyed the. Uh, you know, five books or so that you know, we discussed tonight. Uh, uh, is there anything else you want to say? Before, as we no, I think you, you've you've covered it well. I think you know we we talked about why people do the things they do and 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 how other people react to it, and that's kind of the essence of the whole thing. And I I, I think we've uh, you know I'm I'm honored that you had so many other questions, but I I, I think we've covered the waterfront here. Okay. Well, uh, all right. So uh, I'll let you he- head to bed and thank let you. Me know when the next <laughs> when the next book comes out, you're, you're invited. You have an op- open invitation. Bring oh, very good. Too. Yeah. Okay. And, and best of luck to you, Mark. And uh, we'll talk again. All right. So- sounds good. We'll get the archive to you tomorrow. Thanks so much mark and uh we will see everyone next week good night everyone